Well, good morning, and welcome again to Grace Presbyterian Church. My name is uh, Marshall Brown. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Nick and Katie and the others. Welcome back to the Costa Rica team. Can't wait to hear more about that. They get in later than midnight last night, so impressive that you're even here. Um, And today is Father's Day, and uh, one thing to remember is uh, Christians, every day is Father's Day. Every day is Father's Day with our Heavenly Father. Let me pray before we look at the passages uh, that my wife just read for us. Great God, we come to some inspiring passages, we come to challenging passages, we come to talk about giving, about Christian giving. And so God, I pray that as we look at these passages that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts are pleasing to you, and that as we look at these passages, we would remember, God, on this Father's Day, that no matter the nature of our earthly father, even if he's still with us, That you are our Heavenly Father. You are good. You delight to give good gifts to your children. You delight to see us grow with a heart like yours that loves to give. So this Father's Day, God, give us more of your fatherly heart. We pray this for Christ's sake, your Son, and in his name. Amen. Well, we're nearing the end of a sermon series that we have called The Living Church. Uh, I wanted to do this sermon series now as kind of we are exiting uh, the pandemic or whatever is happening, uh, and to kind of set the framework for the fall, really, because in many ways, uh, a lot of us will go away on vacation, will be come and go, there are a lot of fun activities, but the church will really uh, get going again, as it were, in the fall. And so I wanted these ideas, the ideas of the living church, kind of bouncing around our heads uh, these weeks and this summer. Now, this sermon series is built upon Acts 2.42 and the commitments of the early church. We've said this every week. If you're looking for one verse to memorize this summer, this is an easy one to memorize, Acts 2.42. And they, the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Okay, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to these things. And we have said week after week that these commitments, these devotions of the early church that they are not just descriptions of the early church, but they are prescriptions for the church throughout all ages. They're not just descriptions, they are prescriptions. And that this sermon, the Sermon on Giving, and by the way, I always tie giving sermon like there's no giving need, you know, we're not budget season, so I, you know, I try to, uh, you know, be innocent as a dove on these things. Um, Someday I'll have to do that. But anyway, uh, but this is clearly a prescriptive idea here because this topic is made so clear. I mean, the Apostle Luke, in writing the book of Acts, the guy named Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he had a limited amount of space and a limited amount of things he could say, and yet three times he keeps up bringing up this same and similar story about the generous, sacrificial giving of the early Christians. He's not just telling a story. He's telling us what he expects, what he, how we should live. And so twice in Jerusalem and once in Antioch, Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 11, we get an offering report, a capital campaigns report. Now, the New Testament talks a lot about giving within the churches. And it's interesting, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, think about this. When you think of the Apostle Paul, if you're from the Christian tradition, you've been around, when you think of Apostle Paul, you think theologian, you think missionary, or at least I do, you think uh, church planter, you think all of those things. You don't think fundraiser. And yet he regularly writes about money, 
which is not all that surprising. Jesus talks a lot about money, and it's very close to following Jesus' heart is how we handle our finances, how we give. But it's not just that he talks about money. He actually talks about raising money. He talks about it in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, Galatians 2. He's he's a fundraiser. I mean, he's very specific. He asks for money. And it's an interesting use of his very valuable and precious time. That he not only raises money, but he's actually the delivery mechanism. It's interesting, both in Galatians 11 and later in in, in the book of Acts, Paul is the one who actually delivers the money, okay? That doesn't seem like a very good use of his time. I'd like to ask him about that one day. I mean, like, couldn't have somebody else taken the money to Jerusalem? I mean, this happens twice. I mean, but before wire transport and before Venmo, somebody had to take the money. And the Apostle Paul, he's the guy. He raises the money, and then he actually travels with the bag of money to Jerusalem. It's really kind of interesting to me, that his choice to use his time like this. Now, but here in the gospel, in the book of Acts, the, the author I said is Luke. He's Paul's companion. Uh, this is a story about the expansion of the gospel. Here three times, though, he talks about giving within and between uh, churches. Let me tell you a little bit about each of these stories, and then we'll get into uh, what I want to say this morning. Let me just kind of retell the story of each chapter. Chapter 2 first. This is the earliest days of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, look with me at verse 44. I'll just read it. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay? That's Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 4, similar story. It's the same church, church at Jerusalem. And it says this. Look with me at verse 33. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to any as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him. He brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. It's powerful stuff. It's not limited to the Jerusalem church. Several years later, this message of Jesus has spread to Antioch, which we said last week is southern Turkey. It is a Greek or a Gentile church. And it says this in chapter 11. Well, I should say this. In chapter 11, verse 28, there's a prophecy you see of a famine. We'll talk about that again in a moment. But then in verse 29, it says this. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so those are the three stories kind of in general. Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 11. Three times Luke wants to point this out. Now, in this sermon series, we've been using a garden metaphor. Okay, we've been using a garden metaphor. I told you I planted a, 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 we were planting a a garden in my house. It's actually doing pretty well. Uh, There's a strawberry to be harvested tomorrow morning, a strawberry to be harvested tomorrow morning. Now we've said that the apostles' teaching, uh, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, those are the things that we put in, right? Those are like the inputs, like uh, the fertilizer, the seed. Those are what we can control. And we've said all along that we can plant, we can water, we can fertilize. We can be devoted to learning, to worshiping, to loving, the living church. That's what we've said about the living church. We can be devoted to all those things. But it's up to God to give the growth. Because we don't know when famine is coming, we don't know when a bumper cop is coming, we don't know when the rain is coming or when a drought is coming. Okay, Which is to say we can do something about the inputs, learning, loving, worshiping, but the outputs, the fruit is totally up to God. 
It is totally up to God. And one thing I have wondered, it's interesting because giving is not in 242, but it's in all these verses right after it, right? One thing I've wondered about giving is that is giving an input or is it an output, okay? Is giving an input that leads to changed hearts and the spread of the gospel? Or is giving the output of changed hearts and the spread of the gospel? Which, to stay with the metaphor, is giving the fertilizer or is giving the fruit? Do you see the distinction I'm making? Which one is it? We moved here eight years ago from Los Angeles, and Allison, who read the scripture this morning, she owned this awesome and cool house in West Hollywood. And uh, right outside of her kitchen door was a garden. There's this amazing garden, and it's, because it's you know, 72 and sunny and 72 all year round, I mean, things just kind of grow. If you can water them, they grow, okay? And so one year uh, at Easter time, uh, there had been a, tom- a tomato quiche served, a really amazing tomato quiche had been served. And at the end of the meal, there were just a few like, kind of like seeds left in the bottom of the little tin pan. And so somebody opened the kitchen door and just kind of threw it out into the garden. They just threw the, the remains of the tomato quiche into the garden. Just threw it out there, right? Nope, nothing was done to it. One year later, there's this amazing tomato plant that grows up. Like these heirloom tomatoes, you just kind of grew up. It's amazing, right? At the end of that season, we, we harvested those tomatoes. We ate those amazing tomatoes. It wilted. It died, which is to say it became compost nourishing the soil, and the next year, and even more amazing tomatoes came up, right? You see, the seed became the fruit, which became the fertilizer, which became even better fruit. It was a feedback loop, the fertilizer and the fruit. It was an input and an output. And what I want to suggest this morning is that giving is both fertilizer and fruit. It is input and output. The living church gives. It is essential to who we are as the people of God. Here's how I want to talk about it this morning. I want to talk about some principles, basically three principles of the giving church. I want to talk about two significance, at least a dual significance of the giving church and the single motivation of the giving church. But first, three principles. And let me just say this, this is not an exhaustive discussion of the principles of Christian giving. This is a few, three uh, principles from uh, these passages, principles of the giving church. The first principle of the giving church is this, that the the, the gifts were dispersed according to need. The gifts were dispersed according to need. This is implied in all three passages. It is most clearly seen in chapter 2, verse 45, the last half of it. Look with me. It says, they distributed the proceeds of all to any as they had Need Okay, they distributed to any as they had need. The dispersal is according to need. Now, there's an important sub-principle here. It's clear that in all three passages, the giving was through the local church. I won't go into this, but you notice uh, laying at the feet of the apostles, giving to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This was all done through the local church. Um, and there's an implied mechanism that somehow the local church, the leaders, a plurality of leaders determined what the need was. Now, there's a sub-principle here that's very important and needs to be said again and again in our day and age, and it's all over the New Testament, and that is this. Christian giving needs to be carefully supervised. Christian giving needs to be carefully supervised, as it was here in the early church. There needs to be a system in our giving, whether to churches or nonprofits, of checks and balances. Everything from the way the offering is counted to how external folks will do audits 
to how expenses are processed, and there also needs to be vetting. One of the things I'm most happy about in the last year, I had nothing to do with it, is our missions committee has created and started using report cards for our various missions before we give money out the door, vetting the ministries uh, to whom we give. Christian giving needs to be carefully supervised. So the first thing is that, uh, the first principle is that the giving is according to need. The dispersal is according to need. Well, more relevant to our context probably, the giving is also according to ability. So the dispersal is according to need, but the giving is also according to ability. You see this several places. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Every person according to his ability. Here's the reality. Every single person in this room, every single person watching online, has a different financial situation. Every single person, right? And we all have different financial abilities. We have financial different situations. So what are you supposed to give? I don't know. I do not know. What is your ability? I just don't know. But I do know several things. First, all followers of Jesus are called to give. Second, I do know that, the, that God gifts, he actually uses the word charisma, which is the word for spiritual gift, that God gifts some people with the ability to make money so they can give money away in eye-popping numbers. God, it's a gift that people, God gives to people to give even more generously than others. Everybody gives differently, but some people God particularly gifts with the gift of giving. So, and also I know this, that one person's sacrificial gift is another person's rounding error, okay? What is a thousand dollar gift for some people is very generous and very sacrificial. For other folks, a thousand dollars is nothing. You could even start adding zeros to that number and the same thing is true, right? One thing about when it comes to money, and this is true of all of life, but maybe especially with money, when it comes to your financial situation, you have to love the story that God has given you. This is so hard, I think, on all places around the world, but especially maybe on the North Shore, where it's such a tendency for us to look at people who have more than us. Look at the vacations they take. Look at their house. Look at the cars they drive. To always look up and to forget that God has given you what is perfect for you. Love your story. Love your financial story. This week I was very happy. Uh, the Golden State Warriors, my second favorite team in the NBA, my favorite is the Dallas Mavericks. The, uh, the Golden State Warriors won the NBA championship. A little bit, uns- you know, two months ago nobody would have guessed this, but the New- Golden State Warriors won the NBA championship. And I love Steph Curry. I love Steph Curry. I actually coached against him when he was in sixth grade. I was coaching an eighth grade team. He played up on the sixth grade team. I actually coached against Steph Curry. I didn't know him as Steph Curry. I knew him as Dale Curry's son. Uh, So I've always loved and followed Steph Curry. He's a man of faith, and I've always followed and loved him. But Steph Curry, several years ago, when the Warriors won their first NBA championship in 2015, he was playing on a rookie contract. He was the best player on the floor, but he was the fifth or sixth best player on his team. Let me say that again. He was the best player on the floor, but the fifth or sixth best player on his team because he was playing. He's getting paid real well right now, by the way. Uh, but, But back then... And somebody asked him, does it bother you that you're the MVP of the, of, the se- of the season and you're getting paid a lot less money? And he said, I always remember what my dad taught me. Del Curry said, I remember what my dad taught me. Don't waste your time counting someone else's money. That's good advice. 
Don't waste your time counting someone else's money. Love the story God gave you. Love the story God gave you. Now, general biblical principles of giving, I I had to address it somewhere in here. Let me just be very brief here. The general biblical principle is for followers of Jesus, and I want to say this very clearly. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not, please feel no obligation to ever give. I'll actually address that in just a moment. But the general principle give, biblical principle is to give at least 10% of your income. And I want you to know uh, your leaders, pastors, myself included, elders and deacons all commit to giving at least 10% of their income. Now, how you count income, you know, whether it's gross uh, net, whether it's, you know, giving to, uh, you know, count your stocks. I don't, I don't care about that number. I just say, do you commit to giving 10%? I ask that of all of our leaders, and they say, yes, we commit to giving 10%. Now, some of us uh, should be giving much more than that, even multiples of that percentage, right? Even multiples of 10%. And the reason, and this is important, is the realization that everything, the ability, to go back to that word ability, your financial ability is a gift of God. I mean, your financial life will not be free until you realize that everything you have is a gift, is the gift of God. And once you do, you can be set free. And that brings us to the third principle. We've said first that giving is dispersed according to need. It is given according to ability. The third thing about, the third principle for giving is this, that it is given cheerfully, willingly, and sacrificially. This is the most important point. Chapter 2, verse 47, look with me, says they gave with glad hearts. And then Acts chapter 11. Let me just tell this story just a little bit. Acts chapter 11, a prophet named Agabus, he actually shows up later in the book of Acts. He predicts a famine over the whole world, okay? Now let me give you a little geographical uh, summary here. Antioch is roughly 400 miles from Jerusalem. The home church in Jerusalem is 400 miles from Antioch. They're a different country, they're a different ethnicity, and maybe most importantly, these people had never met. I mean, if you lived in Antioch in the ancient world, you would never know somebody in Jerusalem. You probably spoke a different language, you were a different ethnicity. You never met these people. And the people in Antioch, they're told that a famine is coming to Antioch because the famine is coming to the whole world, right? The famine is coming to Antioch as well. Okay, they're going to suffer, and their response was not, how can we survive? What was their response? Their response is, how can we help? I love the attitude of the Antiochian Christians. I mean, it's like being told, imagine the, being told that there's a famine coming over the whole world. It's like being told that inflation's going to be 8 to 10%, the market's going to be down 20%, there's a war. That's our... Hello, that's funny. Uh, That's our world. That's our world. And and when you hear that news to say, not how can I protect myself, but how can I give? That was the attitude. They hear a famine is coming and their response is not how can we protect ourselves. But what about our brothers and sisters in Judea? First John said God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a fearless giver, a courageous giver, someone who gives to their own hurt. You know, kind of like God, who gives to his own hurt. Now, let me just say this. I don't know what you're supposed to give, but I know this. These passages are meant to design, are designed for, I mean, Luke is a, he's a, he's a, he's a skilled writer. And he wants all of us to wrestle with these questions. How much is enough? How much should I weigh my family's needs against the infinite needs of the world? 
How much should I save prudently and how much should I give? Right? Luke is relentlessly probing our motives. He's not giving us a dictum. He's probing our motives. But I want to ask you, when confronted with need, is your need to help or to hedge and edge away? To find a way to meet the need or to find an excuse for avoiding generosity. I don't know what you're supposed to do with your money, how much you are supposed to give. But I do know that as followers of Jesus, we are called to give according to the need that is expressed, according to our ability, and generously and sacrificially. So those are some of the principles. Now let's look at some of the significance of their giving. And this kind of blew me away. Some of this I didn't really realize. The significance of the giving church. First, the, the first significance of the giving church is the nature of God's kingdom. Uh, look with me in chapter 4, verse 34. This is an amazing statement, and I'm going to show you how in just a second, in three different ways. Acts 4, 34. Now, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had uh, need. Okay, now this, first of all, this is not communism. This is not forced. And clearly they still own some houses in which they were worshiping and selling some, but not all. Okay? But this is astonishing in several ways. First of all, they are not just giving of their income. Right? Notice, they're not just giving their income. They're selling land and houses. They're giving their capital away. They're giving their net worth away. But the second thing to notice is they are, this is even more significant than giving their capital away. They are giving their ancestral heritage away. To be a Jew was to be in the land of promise and to be given land by allotment to tribe and then to family. Everybody had an allotment, okay? I mean, everybody, all the 12 tribes. And so to sell your land was to give away part of God's inheritance to your family, to your forebears. I mean, this is radical generosity. But then maybe most radical, because it's clearly connected to the Old Testament scriptures, is that, line, is that line at the very beginning of verse 34. It says, there was no needy person among them. Now, you might just think, that's, that's okay, that's just a kind of a cool thing about the way they loved each other. Well, that is actually almost a direct quote from, Gen um, excuse me, from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. Look it up. Deuteronomy 15, chapter 4, 15, 4. Deuteronomy 15 is about the canceling of debt. Every seven years in Israel, the debts were supposed to be canceled so that there would be no needy person in the community. Well, we have no record that that ever happened. There was no record uh, in the Messianic kingdom in Israel. There was no record that that ever happened, that there was a canceling of debt, okay? Which is to say Deuteronomy 15.4 never happened in the Jewish scriptures, in the Old Testament. But here it begins to happen. What Luke is saying is that the kingdom of God has come in power because quoting Deuteronomy 15, 4, which has never happened before in the history of God's people, it's starting to happen. There was no needy person among them. Okay, this is speaking of the nature of God's kingdom. They are declaring and demonstrating that God's kingdom has come and is coming. Many Sundays we will say together the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us. And I love that line, your kingdom come or thy kingdom come, your will be done. Friends, when we give, 
when we give, we are saying God's kingdom has come and is coming. To give is to signify the nature of God's kingdom. But it doesn't just signify the nature of God's kingdom. It also signifies the nature of God's people. Now look with me at chapter 11. Okay? It's fascinating. Here's the church at Antioch, this Gentile church, and they call the people in Judea their brothers and sisters. Right? They're united. They're saying we are family. They're talking about people 400 miles away of a different ethnicity who have persecuted them, by the way, and they're describing them as family. That's how they're, I mean, this is, a, like, think about your own house, right? In your house, you don't own, it's like, it's like that's not that, my chair, or that's not my table. I mean, if you're the primary breadwinner in your home, uh, don't do this. Come home and talk about how you made my money. That doesn't go over so well, right? If you're the primary, no, it's our money. And as early Christians, they're saying, we are family, this is ours. There's a geographic boundary. There's an economic boundary. There's an ethnic boundary. And yet they give generously. It's a striking illustration and declaration of Christian fellowship and Christianity. For all the things that divide us, what matters to them is what unifies them, which is the Lord Jesus. Now, we had to print these bulletins. We had to print these bulletins like 10 days ago, uh, and I was not sure which direction I was going when the bulletins were printed. I wish I had included, and you're going to have to trust me if you have your Bibles open, you can look this up. Chapter 11, verse 26, the very last thing right before it picks up in the printing before you, verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 26, the last thing it says before it starts in verse 27 is this. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I don't think this is accidental. What does it mean to be a Christian? Actually, Christian just means little Christ, okay? And so right before this amazing display of generosity, it notes that the followers of Jesus by people outside the church, are, they pick up a nickname from the, the rest of the Antiochians. You know, nick times are sometimes uh, created in jest They're to make fun of people. And doubtless the people in Antioch were mocking these early Christians and giving them the name Christians, little Christ, but I have to also think they were observing the behavior of these Christians and saying, you know what? You look like, with the way you deal with your money, you look like Jesus. You smell like Jesus. You see, friends, what we do with our money and our possessions declares loudly to a watching world who we are and whose we are, what we do with our money. Says to the world, this is who we are. And the, these first Christians in Antioch, they were called Christians because the way they gave, well, it looked like Jesus. And the way he gave. Because as much as this text is about the nature of God's kingdom and of God's people, this is really our giving is about the nature of our God. Because when we give generously, when we give sacrificially, when we give and we see we have need, who do we look like? We look like our heavenly Father who has been giving since the creation. He gave us our life. He gave us everything we see. He gave us everything. And most of all, he gave his son. And his son gave his life. You are most like God at some level when you are giving generously and sacrificially. It is his nature. And when we give, we are signifying to the world, this is who our God is. 
This is who he is. And so therefore we give. The significance of the early church's giving was the nature of God's kingdom, the nature of God's people, but ultimately it was the nature it was the nature of God himself. Let me just tell a quick story. If you're looking for some good summer reading, one of my favorite books is Sheldon Van Auken's A Severe Mercy. Sheldon Van Auken's A Severe Mercy. A great little read. I still remember, you know, a good book is determined by, if I can remember where I read it. And I remember where I was when I finished that book. It was such a good book. Sheldon Van Auken's A Severe Mercy. It's the story of his, Sheldon, and his wife, Davy, their path to faith in Jesus. They were agnostics uh, when they were married. They were deeply cynical about Christians and Christian people, uh, anybody who called themselves Christian. They were intellectuals. They moved to Oxford, England to get a graduate degree. And surprisingly, it was within the Oxford circle of academics, including C.S. Lewis, that they recognized their own hypocrisy and misunderstanding of Christianity. Sheldon Van Auken writes the following. Our fundamental assumptions which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were stuffy, hidebound, and stupid. People to keep one's distance from. We kept our distance so successfully that we did not know any Christians or anything about them. But then we met these Christians, and the sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotypes. The astonishing fact sank home that our own contemporaries could be once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with. And then he says this, the best argument, and I don't always think this is true, but he was a young Christian when he wrote this, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness, and I would add their giving. Our giving points to the nature of our God. So we've seen the significance of the giving church. We've seen the principles of the giving church. Let's look finally and most importantly at the motivation of the giving church. And friends, there is one motivation to giving. It is the resurrection of Jesus. I could show this to you from all three passages, but I will show it to you from chapter 4. Look with me at chapter 4. Because what we have in chapter 4 is what I want to call a resurrection sandwich. A resurrection sandwich. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 33, excuse me, 32. It talks about how they gave. I won't read it again. Verse 32 talks about how they gave. Skip to verse 34. Verse 34 also talks about how they gave. I will read that one. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land sold them and brought them to what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed, okay? So verse 32, how they gave. Verse 34, how they gave. But in the middle... The sandwich, it talks about why they gave. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I love it. And great grace was upon them all. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is what is powering this community to give. It is really the only motivation. First of all, the belief that Jesus has been raised from the dead means that he is taking care of us and we can trust him. Okay, And then one little aside real quick, if you are not sure or you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, please do not give. Not because I don't want your money, I'd love to have your money, but that's not why. Please do not give. Because if you give not believing in the resurrection of Jesus, it is so easy to sleep into an anti-gospel thinking that my giving somehow earns something for me. To slip into a moralism. And the Christian message is not we give so that God will save us. 
It's because we believe Jesus has been raised from the dead that therefore we give. So if you don't believe, don't give. Pastorally, I said to you, don't give until you believe that Jesus, because trust me, once you come to believe, you'll give. You'll be so amazed of God's love for you that you can't help yourself but give. So don't give unless and until you do. But there's also this about the resurrection, because the resurrection is not just about the past. When we think of the resurrection of Jesus, we think of something that happened 2,000 years ago, and it did when Jesus was raised from the dead. But it's about more than a past event, because the resurrection of Jesus is the promise of the future. It's a promise of hope. It's the hope, the belief that one day that God will put the world to rights That one day he will sort everything out. That one day everything sad will become untrue. And the more we believe that thing about our future, we are free to give today. The one thing that motivates Christian giving is the belief in the resurrected Jesus and the hope of the resurrection to come. So I want to end just with two two things real quickly. First of all, First of all, I want us to think about that input-output. I want you to think about my tomato garden, Allison's tomato garden. I want you to think about that. And to realize that giving is both an input and an output. Okay? Uh, years, this week is the General Assembly for our denomination. I'm hoping to run into this man who 15 years ago really changed my life. He made a one, he, I, I run into him every year. I see him once a year. We say hello. I have a two-minute conversation. But I'm going to try to find him this year. His name is Ricky Jones. And I'm going to find Ricky because Ricky said something to me years ago. I've told this story, I'll tell a briefer version right now. But a few, several years ago, during a general assembly, I was struggling financially. Things were very tight financially. It's like 10 or 15 years ago. And I remember saying this to Ricky, and he said to me, well, you need to find a way to give more if you're struggling financially. I was like, what? Are you crazy? But you know what? I did that. I did that. I was able to give more. I actually gave some stock that in 08 went to zero, uh, Lehman Brothers stock. Uh, I gave some stock. Kind of, It was like, oh, it's going to hurt. But it actually, that act actually liberated my heart to let go of my, just a little bit let go of the things that are given to us. Right? It was an input that led me to believe more in the output, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It goes both ways. So give in response, but sometimes, like in my case 15 years ago, you need to give to kind of open up your heart. It's an input and an output. I don't know your story, you do. But the last thing I'll say this, my hope for our church, my hope for our church is that people will look at us like they looked at the Antiochian church and said, those people like Jesus, they're little Christian, they're little Christ, they are Christians. They would see our generosity to one another, They would see our generosity to other Christians and to folks who don't yet believe or don't believe at all. And they would say there's something different about them. There's a salt. There's a light. There is some goodness. That we would be a church known far and wide for our giving. I've said this, and this makes all the leaders nervous, but I say it out. I've said it to them. I don't know if I've ever said it here. I want this church to be a breadbasket church. Where if you're raising money, you're like, well, I heard it grace up there. They give a lot of money away. Let's go talk to them. And we'll find ways to say no if we need to say no. we got these report cards, okay? But I want our church to be known for its generosity. Because we can. God has given us so, so much. And thank God to him for that. Let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you that you have given us so much. Most of the people in the sound of my voice, most of the people, especially myself, we have nothing to worry about financially at this moment. 
And God, we give you thanks for that. And I pray that you would grow all of our hearts in generosity. Because, Lord, you have been so generous, so giving to us. Would you make it so for your name's sake? Amen.